Today is April 14th. What's tomorrow? Tax day, right? And it just so happens that the text is a question where Jesus is asked, must we pay our taxes? So you go, how much brilliant planning has gone in to the alignment of this text as I'm preaching through Matthew? How many years did you put into... Pure coincidence on my part, but God does things like this all the time. Um, you know, some churches are like, oh, let's do all topical messages and survey, and it's a, it's a complex thing figuring out what to teach when, and I think God just says, preach through my word, and I know what's going on in everybody's life and heart, and um, you just preach the word, and I will take care of uh, the timing. All right, Matthew 22. Then the Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle him in his words. Now, picture a press conference where uh, maybe it's a sports figure or a politician uh, is having a press conference, but the room is loaded with press that want to get the person. That, in essence, is what's going on here. The Pharisees are calling a press conference with Jesus. They want to entangle him. But if you hold a press conference today, what's the worst that can happen? Maybe you lose your reputation. Here, they're hoping to entangle him so they can bring charges against him, so they can arrest him, so they can kill him. So you go, ah, oh, this, is, this is not that important of a, of a situation. No. Um, death hangs over his head as he answers this question. Now, the Pharisees want to entangle him, but look at verse 16. And they sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians. Now, what's that all about? Well, the Pharisees, you could equate them to the religious right. They did not like Herod, the king. They did not like Pilate, the governor. They did not like Rome oppressing them. If they could, they would take over the government and destroy uh, Rome. So the Pharisees are the religious right who does not like being controlled by the government. Who are the Herodians? That's the religious left. They're the ones who say, you know, the only way to succeed as a nation and as Jews is to get in bed with the government. Let's just bless whatever Herod says. So you go, well, these two don't agree with, anybody, with one another at all. No, they hate each other. So why are they teaming up? Well, sometimes when enemies have a common enemy, their hatred for one another goes away as they go after their common enemy. You know, um, as Jesus stands on trial before Pilate, he doesn't want to judge him, so he sends him to Herod, the king. And Herod listens to him, and he sends him back to Pilate. And Pilate and Herod hated each other. But here's what it says in Luke 23, 12. Herod and Pilate became friends with each other that very day, for before this, they had been at enmity with each other. So, um, 
Their common hatred for Jesus brought these two enemies together. Isn't that a wonderful thing? And Jesus seems to be bringing enemies together all over the place, the Pharisees and the Herodians. Now, here's the trick question. But before, before they ask the question, they go, Teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God truthfully, and you do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearance. In the words of that great theologian, Mick Jagger, flatter, 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 right? They're setting him up. We know you don't care what man thinks. You let us have it. So we want you. Come on, Jesus. Let us have it. Tell us what you really think about taxes. All right. Now, uh, here's, here's the question. Verse 17. Tell us then what you think. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Now, why is this a trap? Why is this a trick question? Well, no matter what he answers, yes or no, He's in trouble. If he says, yes, it's right to pay taxes, then they say, aha, so you support Rome. The coin with which you would pay your tax is idolatrous. It has blasphemous sayings on it. You support emperor worship. Clearly, you're not a prophet of God. So if he says, yeah, go ahead, pay the tax, support Rome, um, they would, would... Say he loses credibility uh, with the Jewish people. If he says, no, don't pay the tax, well then he's rebelling against the government, against Rome. He is starting a tax revolt. He's a treasonous rebel. They could arrest him and try him and kill him. So he's in a a, a no-win situation. So how does he answer? Verse 18. But Jesus, aware of their malice, said, Why put me to the test, you hypocrites? Don't you love that? Let's address the real issue. You don't really want to know about taxes. You want to, t- to test me and trap me. So let's cut through the, the pretense, you sanctimonious hypocrites. But I'll play. I'll play your game. Taxes for 50, Alex. Go ahead. Give me, give me the question. Okay, And here's how he answers. 19. Show me the coin for the tax. And they brought him a denarius. And Jesus said to them, holding up the denarius, okay, whose likeness and inscription is this? They said, Caesar's. Then he said to them, and here it comes, therefore render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. That's his answer. Now, we've heard that quoted many times. Have you ever thought how profound that answer is? What's he doing here? He is saying, you are both right and you are both wrong. You're both wrong in that you have no category in your mind for there being two distinct God-given institutions. Church and state. Church hadn't been invented yet, but religion and the state. The Pharisees, their way of dealing with this is to merge church and state and let's have the church, the religious people, call all the shots 
and the government is in subjection to them. The Herodians, they want to merge church and state and have the state call all the shots and be in subjection, or the church would be in subjection to them. Jesus is saying, I am making a distinction between these two institutions. Give to the state what is due them, taxes, but don't give them what is not due them, worship. And give to God what is due him, worship and love and your life and ultimate allegiance. In other words, they're both legitimate institutions from God. They deserve honor, respect, but what you give each of them is different. You're both wrong because it's possible to pay taxes without worshiping the leader. And it's possible to worship God without creating a tax rebellion. There's my answer and their response. When they heard it, they marveled. And they left him and they went away. And they, you can see him walking away going, bah, 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 bah. you know, what was that? Right? So, in one sentence, Jesus does some amazing things. He exposes their hypocrisy. He saves his life, at least for a few more days. He displays his Solomon-like wisdom. And for our purposes this morning, he defines the fact that we have to live in two kingdoms. There's the kingdom of this world, with taxes and government and laws, and the kingdom of God. We are dual citizens of two kingdoms. Now, here's what I want to do. I want to see if we can derive five lessons from the words, render unto Caesar that which is Caesar and to God that which is God's. Okay, five lessons. Lesson number one, both church and state are legitimate, distinct, God-ordained institutions. Both of them are legit, and both are, are God-ordained. Now, I don't think we need to spend any time proving that the church is a God-ordained institution. You are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. There it is. God ordained the church. But is government a divine institution? Well, Jesus says it is, and Paul, in Romans 13, goes on to further uh, delineate this. He says, let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. <laughs> the government is a divine institution. It's not the church. It's secular. It is run sometimes by evil, vile people. No, no Kevin, I'm just teasing, okay? <laughs> but here's what people do. They go, well, only the church can be ordained of God because that's God's people that are saved and sanctified. The government, that's full of people who aren't necessarily saved. In fact, sometimes they do evil things. Therefore, it can't be of God. No. Romans 13, 1, 
the government has been ordained of God, instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. So what's the purpose of the government? To reward good and to punish bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good. Obey the laws, right? And you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, bad, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. We'll come back to that. I believe uh, God has given the government not only authority, but the authority to punish, to imprison, to fine, and to put to death. The sword was not just for scaring people. It was for killing people. Okay? For he's a servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in uh, subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. So, point number one, Romans 13 makes it clear that the government... The state is a God-ordained institution. Without it, we would have total chaos. You go, well, it's total chaos the way it is. It would be a lot worse without it. Therefore, you need to subject yourself to the government of whatever state you're in. Well, what about Hitler? What about that? Well, we'll get to the exceptions just in just a minute. Okay. Point number one, though, church and state are divinely ordained institutions. Now, point two, paying your full tax is right. Verse six, for because of this, you also pay taxes. Because of what? Because God ordained government, you need to pay your taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Why should I pay my taxes? Because government is a God-ordained institution, and if you don't, you're really stealing from God, is what this is saying. Okay? But, now here's the objection. But, I disagree with a lot of things that the government does. So I feel justified in holding back in my taxes. Well, um, I hope you disagree with a lot of things that our government does. Um, you know, 40 years ago, our Supreme Court invented a constitutional right to infanticide, to the legal killing of babies. And we go, what about Hitler? You know, Hitler systematically exterminated six million Jews. And we go, God's wrath deserves to come down on that country. We have legally exterminated 60 million babies with legal protection. Should the wrath of God come down upon this country? I don't see why not. I don't see any argument that you could possibly give to justify the killing 
of innocent babies in their mother's womb. Have you, uh, have you seen in the news this Philadelphia doctor who had a shop of horrors because um, his abortion clinic, um, he would deliver them alive and take the living baby and take the scissors and snap their necks. Now, interesting. I won't ask for a show of hands, but many of you say, I haven't heard this. See, the media is in trouble. If they report this, you know, or they know, that you will think this is the most horrendous thing in the world. But they also know, the next question is, if it's wrong to kill that baby one second out of the womb, why is it okay to kill that baby one second in the womb? And if it's okay, or if it's wrong to kill it one second in the womb, what about one hour earlier? Or what about one month earlier? But here, we have to get to the point where it's blood and gore and undeniable infanticide before we go, oh, maybe the whole thing's wrong. Okay? And by the way, if you haven't heard about this story, you might want to ask, am I plugged into the right news media or am I listening to media and watching media that's part of the conspiracy to cover up that abortion is murder? Just some questions you might want to think about, but um, we are guilty because we are a democracy of allowing at least 60 million babies to be murdered in their mother's womb, okay? I'm not taking political sides here. I'm just stating what the church needs to state clearly. Murder is wrong. There's no justification for this. There is no political argument, semantic argument. There there isn't a semantic argument, but that's what the media does. Instead of calling it murder, it's a woman's choice. It's a reproductive right. So you can use all the clever terms and political maneuvering. Every one of us will stand before God as a citizen of the United States of America and give an account for what we did about it. Okay? So now, what else is going on in the government? Well, now we want to sanctify homosexual marriage. Okay. And you've heard all the arguments. How can we stop two people who love one another? And, and all I would say is this. In Romans 1, it says the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven. And then it goes on to describe not homosexual marriage, but homosexual behavior. And the point of Romans 1 is not that the wrath of God will come because of this behavior. The point is the fact that nobody can see it's wrong in Romans 1. The fact that it's acceptable is the wrath of God. It's the wrath of stupidity. 
It's the wrath of being handed over to your sin and your depravity so much that you can't even recognize that it's wrong. And we have the audacity to now want to sanctify this behavior as a beautiful thing. When will the wrath come? That is the wrath. And if you can't see it, fear. Because the wrath of God is upon you and your mind has been so clouded that you think it's a beautiful thing. Okay? Now you're going to preach it, preach it, yep. Straighten things out. And by the way, I'm not talking politics. I'm talking morals right here. I'm talking what the church needs to talk about, what is morally right and morally wrong. Now, the next, the next step people will say is, preach it, I agree with you, therefore I can't in good conscience give my money to a government that would allow this to go on, so I have a godly justification for cheating on my taxes. Now you've gone too far. Right? I, I was with you up until... The cheating on taxes part. Okay? Because in Romans 13, it says pay your taxes. And who was the, the ruler? No, it was Nero. Yeah, Nero Caesar. Who was a homosexual. Who was a murderer. Who impaled Christians alive on stakes, covered them in pitch, set them on fire, and rode his chariot with human torches in his garden. So Paul says, pay your taxes. Jesus holds up a denarius. And he says, Who's, who, whose picture is that? Well, it was Tiberius Caesar. And the inscription was, Tiberius Caesar, son of the divine Augustus. Tiberius, son of God. Jesus, the true Son of God, is holding a blasphemous coin, degrading him as the Son of God, and holding up a man and calling him the Son of God. On the other side, it said, Pontifus Maximus, high priest. Who's the, who's the true high priest? Jesus. Here is a coin that on both sides is blasphemous, and Jesus says, take that coin and pay your taxes. Point one, both church and state are legitimate, distinct, God-ordained institutions. Therefore, pay your taxes or you are robbing God. Don't pay a penny more than you need to. Find all the legitimate deductions you can. Right? And I have no problem with any of you doing whatever you need to do politically to change the tax situation. Just don't cheat. Okay? Now, um, let's move on to number three. Oh. Is it working? No. Okay. Number three. When church and state merge, people die. Okay? The legitimate role of civil government, as we saw in Romans 13, is to reward good, and punish evil. God has given the state the power of the sword. In other words, 
Government uses external force to reward good and punish evil. Fines, arrest, and death itself. Okay? The state has a motivating force. They can use force to bring about good. Right? The church tries to motivate but all we have is persuasion and the power of the Holy Spirit okay, and the Word of God. But we do not have the power of the sword. Right? These two modes of motivation cannot be combined. Here's what happens when church and state are merged. Take you through the history of the world. Go, well, it would go one example from the Old Testament. Um, Remember on Easter, we talked about in Babylon, King Nebuchadnezzar assembled the world, put up an idol, and said, bow or die. There, the, the force of the state was used to force a religious issue. And if you didn't bow, you died. Okay? During the time of, of uh, the New Testament, Rome says, you need to say, Caesar is Lord. Put a little pinch of incense in the fire every year. Caesar is Lord. Or you were excluded from the guild and you would not be able to feed your family. Uh, or you would be thrown to the lions because you would not uh, recognize that Caesar is Lord. And Christians said we can't do that because Jesus is Lord. So the power of the state was used to force blasphemy or die. Then huge change takes place in the 4th century. The ruler Constantine converts to Christianity. And now he declares, the world is Christian. You must be a Christian or else. And you go, yes. Now the church has the power of the sword. How do you think that worked? Right, first of all, um, the, the, the really bad part was that the world converted due to force. It wasn't true being born again. So tons of people went to hell because they thought they were Christians. Why? Because it was a law to be a Christian. But then on top of that, you've got the Crusades where the church raised up armies and supported the uh, killing. You've got the Inquisition, believe or be tortured or die. Right? Even after the Reformation in Europe, um, whole countries said, well, we're Catholic or we're Protestant. And you had to leave or convert. So some people get on the Mayflower and they come over here to America, to the whole new world, a whole new world. Right? But before the Constitution, do you know that certain states declared what denomination that state was going to be? And Baptists were freaks. You were persecuted if you were a Baptist. So, Jesus talks about distinguishing between church and state. And it takes until the year 1791, December 15th, 1791, when the first amendment to our Constitution is written. First time on the planet a government actually takes 
Jesus' words seriously. And in our Constitution now, it says this. You go, I thought it was 1776. No, that was when we became independent. This is when the First Amendment was, was added. Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion. Stop right there. It is not the state's place to declare you will be Baptist or you will be Catholic or you will be... It is not the, the, the state's place to do that. So they are not to establish a state or a country religion. But the second part says or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. The state is not to restrict the free flow of religion in this country. We're not to establish, the government's not to establish, but the government is not to restrict religious freedom. Okay? So, when church and state merge, usually what happens is we try to convert with the power of the sword. God never intended it to be that way. You were blessed to be born in the first country that finally got it at least close to right. Okay? Now you go, all right, so what actually does this mean, this concept of distinguishing between church and state? How separate should church and state be, right? Number four, while church and state must be distinguished, they can never be separated, right? See, our secular media wants to convince us that our founders intended a secular society, scrubbed clean of all religious influence, religious symbols, religious holidays, religious morals. But you're allowed to get together in your little churches and believe whatever you want. Just don't let it out in the open. Okay? That's what the secular media wants you to believe the concept of the separation of church and state is. By the way, the term separation of church and state is not in the Constitution. It's in a letter Thomas Jefferson wrote to some Baptists, assuring them that the government would not prevent uh, the free flow of religion. Okay? But um, the, the concept today that most of your kids would be taught in school is believe whatever you want in your little church and your little quiet time, but society needs to be scrubbed clean of Christian Influence Is that what the founders intended? Let's look at some quotes here. Uh, Jefferson, by the way, there's a debate. Was he a Christian? Was he a deist? Actually, if he's not a Christian, that's, this is an even stronger argument. All right? Here's what, what he writes in uh, the Declaration. All men are created equal, that they are endowed by their who? Their creator with certain unalienable rights that among them are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. The foundation of your rights are based in who? Your creator. Wait, how can the founders have assumed a totally secular society when the founding documents go to God himself for our rights? Right? Um, he also wrote, God who gave us life... Uh, who, 
God who uh, gave us life, gave us liberty. Can the liberties of a nation be secure when we have removed a conviction that these liberties are the gift of God? You can't have a secular foundation. You have to have a divine foundation. Uh, Next, George Washington says it's the duty of all nations to acknowledge the providence of Almighty God. Boy, he's crossing lines there, isn't he? Next, John Adams, president number two. We have no government armed with power capable of contending with human passions unbridled by morality and religion. No government is strong enough to contain the evil that will happen in the society that is not religiously informed. Their, their morality is not in religiously informed. Okay? We lose our religious influence. There goes the country, is what the founders said. Adams said this, too. Our constitution, constitution was made for a moral and religious people. It is wholly inadequate to the government of any other. So you see the move to scrub the society clean of any religious influence will destroy the society. Well, who says that? The religious right? No. John Adams says that. There was a guy named Lincoln who said, in regard to this great book, speaking of the Bible, I have but to say it is the best gift God has given to men. All the good Savior gave to the world was communicated through this book. But for it, we could not know right from wrong. See, the founders envisioned a religious society, not a secular society. They just said it's not the state's job to establish which religion, which denomination. That's the church's job, and the church better influence our society morally, or the nation will not survive. Now, let me tell you, I said we'd talk about Hitler. Um, One reason that Germany fell prey to Hitler was their embrace and, I would say, misunderstanding of Luther's doctrine of the two spheres, the two kingdoms. Okay, He talked about the fact that we need to live as citizens of this world and citizens of the kingdom of God. Okay, Now, next slide. This is from Luther's book, When a Nation Forgets God, Seven Lessons We must learn from Nazi Germany. So um, let me read from Erwin Lutzer. Hitler ridiculed Protestant pastors, saying they were cowering dogs who would do his bidding for the sake of their miserable salaries. Another reason why the state, you shouldn't have state-employed pastors. You can control them. Right? Now we have... Um, popularity poll pastors. Pay him if he can draw a big crowd. So, German pastors were controlled by the state in their salary. 
today you're controlled by the numbers game. Okay? So Hitler knew he could manipulate the pastors who would do anything for the sake of their miserable salaries. So right from the beginning, Hitler sought to marginalize the church to guarantee that no Christian influence would be allowed to inform government policy. He said that the churches must be, quote, forbidden from interfering with temporal matters. The state would have to be scrubbed clean of all Christian convictions and values. He was willing to give the churches freedom, he said, quote, as long as they did not do anything subversive to the state. Of course, behind that promise lay his own definition of what subversive might mean. Right? Luther says, the, the Germans had become accustomed to the doctrine of the two spheres, which was interpreted to mean that Christ is Lord of the church, but Kaiser, or Caesar, is Lord over the political sphere. Allegiance to the political sphere was as high and honorable a duty as was one's allegiance to God. Indeed, allegiance to God was best demonstrated by allegiance to the state. Within the Lutheran church, there was a strong pietistic movement that advocated a return to biblical piety. What's biblical piety? The worship of God in your heart. So as long as you and your quiet time are good with God... Private religion is all. You don't need to worry about uh, having any influence in society. Pietism, with its emphasis on personal devotion to Christ, was used to inject spiritual life into the mainstream Lutheran church, but by insisting that their faith was private, pietism had scant influence in stemming the Nazi tide. So those who identify, uh, who do to, so those who dutifully tolerated the excesses of the Nazi re regime, uh, they, they, they put up with the Nazi regime, but they simply continued to study the Bible, to maintain a warm heart, but they didn't get in the fight. These pious Christians thought that if they left Hitler alone, he would leave them alone. Now he gets into a little meeting that Hitler calls with the pastors. And we're most familiar with Bonhoeffer, who was killed for being a spy, pastor spy. People have told me I look like James Bond, but um, <laughs> my wife. <laughs> Actually, I look like Bonhoeffer. <laughs> kind of a bald, chubby guy, you know. Um, so Hitler calls the pastors together, and... Um, Martin Niemöller is Hitler's friend. Niemöller was included January 25, 1934. Niemöller and other members of the clergy walked past the SS guards to the chancellery in Berlin and soon were ushered into Hitler's study. Ooh, Pastor Niemöller called into Hitler's office. Basically, Hitler said this. You confine yourself to the church. I'll take care of the German people. When it was over, Hitler shook hands with the clergy, and Niemöller realized this would be his last opportunity to speak. Carefully choosing his words, he said, You said, I will take care of the German people. 
But we too, as Christians and churchmen, have a responsibility toward the German people. That responsibility was entrusted to us by God, and neither you nor anyone in this world has the power to take it from us. Hitler turned away without a word. That night, Gestapo men ransacked Niemöller's rectory for incriminating material. A few days later, a homemade bomb exploded in his hall. Clearly, the majority of the clergy had adopted an attitude of safety first. More than 2,000 pastors who had stood with Niemöller and Bonhoeffer withdrew their support. They said, we'll go with, we'll, we'll side with Herod. I mean Hitler. They believed that appeasement was the best strategy. They thought that if they remained silent, they could live with Hitler's intrusion into church affairs and his political policies. Okay? Now, one more thing I've got to read you. A German who lived through this whole thing writes these words. I lived in Germany during the Nazi Holocaust. I considered myself a Christian. We heard stories of what was happening to the Jews, but we tried to distance ourselves from it because... What could anyone do to stop it? A railroad track ran behind our church. And each Sunday morning, we could hear the whistle in the distance. And then the wheels coming over the tracks. We became disturbed when we heard the cries coming from the train as it passed by. We realized that it was carrying Jews like cattle in the cars. Week after week, the whistle would blow. We dreaded to hear the sound of those wheels because we knew that we would hear the cries of the Jews en route to a death camp. Their screams tormented us. We knew that the time the train was coming, we knew the time the train was coming, and when we heard the whistles blow, we began singing hymns. By the time the train came past our church, we were singing at the top of our voices. If we heard the screams, we sang loudly. And soon we heard them no more. Years have passed, and no one talks about it anymore, but I still hear that train whistle in my sleep. God, forgive me. Forgive all of us who call ourselves Christians, yet did nothing. Last point. Utopianism is idolatry. You say, all right, let's get politically active and bring paradise here to the world. Voter registration, sign up out here. Wait a minute. Slow down. Utopianism is the idea that man, with the right system, can bring paradise to this world. whether it's communism, socialism, democracy, capitalism, if we just enforce the right system on society, then we can bring about paradise. You know what the problem with that is? It's placing our ultimate hope in man, in government, and is giving government that which is only due to God. Only God deserves our ultimate hope, and that's called worship. Only God deserves our ultimate worship. And you know what? I'm all for 
finding the best form of government that we can find. But once you pour all your life into thinking that that form of government is going to bring about utopia, you've joined the John Lennon delusion. Imagine all the people. Here's what Romans says. For the creation was subjected to futility. In other words, when Adam sinned, God cursed the world. Not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. And the whole of Scripture teaches that the world is cursed, man is sinful, and while Government is a gift to keep man from becoming as bad as he can be. Ultimate paradise cannot come until God, until Christ returns and reverses the curse. You say, well, should we do nothing? You know, some, some people who have a theology that, you know, that we're the Titanic and it's going down, so why polish the brass on the Titanic, is the, the philosophy. Just, I, I, I call it REO Speedwagon theology. Just riding the storm out. Just wait till the tribulation comes, hang on, stock up, and don't do anything to, to uh, better the planet. Okay? Well, um, here's my answer to that. The Titanic's going down. But you don't know if it's going down on its first voyage, its second voyage, or its 127th voyage. So yeah, polish the brass on the Titanic until it's time to go down. But we are to work for relative justice, not ultimate justice. No No system of government, no system of economics can bring in ultimate justice or ultimate paradise. You know what? I think you you need to apply that principle to your citizenship. I think you need to apply that to your marriage. The worst thing you can do is place ultimate hope of ultimate happiness on your spouse. I mean, I know I'm wonderful. But if she places her ultimate hope in her happiness in me, I'm going to disappoint. Even though I do look like James Bond. (laughs) James Bonhoeffer. Well, does that mean you just say, I'm married, I'm stuck, and I'll just gut it out? No. Expect relative happiness, work for relative happiness, but not ultimate happiness. Yeah, you need to adjust your expectations to reality, not to Hollywood. I think some people need to have, uh, need to apply this to the, the church. People say, oh, the church, I can't believe Christians act that way. Well, it's, it ain't heaven yet. All right? 
those who expect the church to be paradise will have a, a record of chronic church hopping. Relative happiness, relative justice, relative marital bliss, relative church satisfaction, because our ultimate hope is in, last slide, Jesus. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling, of, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. And then, here it comes, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. When the Lord returns, it will be perfect. It will be paradise. And those who have placed their trust and their faith in Him, in Christ, see, it's all about the cross. You get to experience this for eternity. Now, we have to live with a foot in both worlds. 